or you stink. And so do I. That is, we give off a, a certain aroma. We give off a certain odor. Our lives have a certain smell about them. The, the Bible talks about, about that. It talks about the aroma of Christ. It, it talks about a scent that ascends to heaven. And the, the choices we make, the disposition we have, the way we carry ourselves, it gives off a, a scent, an odor to people. You know, sometimes that scent or that odor is bitterness, harshness, hardness. Now, it's not a physical odor. It's not, it's not a demonstrative kind of smell, but I think you know what I mean. And then there are so many in our, in our congregation, they give off such a beautiful fragrance of kindness and consideration and forbearance. There, there's just the scent of encouragement all, all about them. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 5. Let me begin reading in verse 1 and read the first two verses. And I'd like to speak to you this morning as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. The fragrant aroma of love, God's love, our love, and Christ's cross. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. As I thought about those two verses this week, the thing that immediately struck me was that God loves me and that God loves you. God loves you. We've talked about that in Ephesians already, but let it, let it sink in for just a moment. God loves you. He loves you individually. He loves you personally. It's a truth that's difficult for us to grasp. I think that's why the Bible repeats it so often. Even in this little letter written to the church at Ephesus, up to this point, Paul has mentioned God's love for them several times. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul wrote, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. In love he predestined us, according to the kind intention of his will. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, and, and if you just think back for a moment, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, said that we were dead, we were enslaved, and we were condemned. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, because of his great love. In chapter 3, Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, and one of the prayers that he prayed was that they would comprehend the incomprehensible. That they would begin to fathom the depth of God's love for them. So in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul wrote, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. He said it is so magnificent, so monumental, that he wanted to pray for them, and by extension we can pray for one another, that they would grasp how deep and wide the love of God is. In chapter 5, verses 20, verse 25, which we'll look at in just a few weeks, Paul wrote, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus Christ loves the church. Jesus Christ loves the people of God because they are the body of, they are his body. They are his bride. They're God's people. They live in God's kingdom. And he says, men love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave himself up for her. In just a brief book like Ephesians, in the first five chapters, all of these monumental, magnificent statements, reminders that we are a loved people. God loves us. As I thought about it, Romans chapter 5, 8, there's many places we could turn to in the Bible, many verses we could look at from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, but one, one verse outside Revelation, or outside of Ephesians that really that really struck my attention was Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He set his love on us not after he had made us right with himself. He set his love on us not after we began to follow him in Christ Jesus. He set his love on us before we knew him as Father. He set his love on us before we knew Christ as Savior. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a monumental truth to try to apprehend God's love for us. How do you get it from your, from, from your mind to your heart? How do we know it more than just intellectually? How can we know it experientially? How can we know that God loves us and it make a real difference in our lives? Well, let me mention just a couple of ways how you can come to know God's love experientially. Not just answer it correctly on an exam, not just be able to, to state it as a, as a truth, but it's a transforming truth. Well, one thing you can do is read your Bible regularly. Because you will see over and over again clear, unambiguous statements that God loves his people. And then you will see unbelievably magnificent examples of how he does it. As he deals with us and kindness, and patience, and forbearance. And so, read the Bible regularly. 
And the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to help you begin to understand in a greater, fuller, more magnificent, and even experiential way that God genuinely loves you. The second thing is pray for the Spirit to take the truth of God's Word and transform your heart. That's why Paul was praying. It's, it's, it's one thing to apprehend it intellectually. It's another thing to know it experientially. The Word of God is used by the Spirit of God, but we need the Spirit of God to use the Word of God. So we pray, God help me to know in the depths of my being, in the midst of life storms, in the midst of life difficulties, that you genuinely, authentically love me. And then pray that for other people as well. The third thing that you can do is open your eyes and take a look around. God has demonstrated and does demonstrate on a daily basis how much he loves us. He does it in a, in a thousand small ways and in hundreds of maybe more significant ways. But we get into the zone of living and we block out everything to the side because we're busy people. We're headed in a direction. We've got a lot of things to do. There's a lot of, lot, of, uh, lot of babies to wash. There's a lot of tasks to be accomplished. And man, we're, we're just on, on the highway of life. And it's good just to stop for a moment and, then, and just look around at all of the ways God has demonstrated his immeasurable love towards you. And then when you see it, take a moment to thank him for it. That's the difference between having a nail and a hammer and then driving the nail into the wood. It's one thing to see it, it's another thing to acknowledge it. Acknowledging, acknowledging it is like the carpenter driving the nail home. And the more you acknowledge it, the more you begin to see it. And the more you begin to see it, the more you begin to acknowledge it. And then little by little, our small hearts begin to grow and enlarge as we understand how much God genuinely and authentically loves us. But in those dark moments when you look around and you don't see it because of the clouds of, of discouragement are pressing in, just turn your eyes to Golgotha's cross. Uh, just turn your eyes to that place outside Jerusalem where Jesus died for you. John Stott put it this way in his book, The Cross of Christ. God could quite justly have abandoned us to our fate. He could have left us alone to reap the fruit of our wrongdoing and to perish in our sins. It is what we deserved, but he did not. Because he loved us, he came after us in Christ. He pursued us even to the desolate anguish of the cross, where he bore our sins, guilt, judgment, and death. It takes a hard, stony heart to remain unmoved by love like that. Listen to that last line again. 
It takes a hard and stony heart to remain unmoved by love like that. You see, as we come to understand how much God loves us, it transforms us into becoming more like him. And as we see how much he loves us, it compels us to love others like he loves us. That's the way that Paul put it in Ephesians. Therefore, be imitators of God, mimic God, act like God as beloved children, and walk in love, live a life of love, just as Christ also loved you. How does he want us to do it? He wants us to give ourselves up for others. And as we do that, there is an an aroma, not a stench. An aroma, not an odor, that begins to ascend to heaven. He wants us to love others just as he loves us. So here's the second thought. Allow God's love of you to transform how you love others. Look back with me in the last verse of chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. He's saying the very same thing. Do to others what I have done for you. Be as kind to them as I am kind to you. Be as tender-hearted to them as I, as t- as I am tender-hearted to you. Forgive them even as I forgive you. And as you do that, as you demonstrate kindness and demonstrate tenderheartedness and demonstrate forgiveness, it's, it's, like, it's like an aroma ascending to the nostrils of God. Oh, that smells so good. It smells so good. She's getting, she's getting it. She's loving the co-worker that stabbed her in the back. He's loving the brother that snubbed him. Oh, they're gonna treat they're treating each other just like I treat them, not, not holding their sin against them. Oh man, that smells so good. They're not storing up in the back of their mind what someone has done to them. They're forgiving, they're forbearing. They're demonstrating kindness and and genuine love. Oh, that smells so, so very good. Allow God's love of you to transform how you love others. What does that life look like? Uh, We often go to 1 Corinthians 13. We call it the love chapter, and, and we go to it at at weddings so often, and it's an appropriate place to turn at a wedding. But the qualities in 1 Corinthians 13 are forged in the fires of church relationships. He wasn't writing this to a wedding. He was writing it to a church. And the qualities of love, they come with some assembly required. 
because that's not who we naturally are. We are by nature a little bit haughty, a little bit arrogant, a little bit condescending, a little bit know-it-all. We're, we are by nature the kind of people that keep lists of those who, who hurt us, and when we see them, we bring that list to mind. But God wants to work in us His love, His disposition. In 1 Corinthians 13, as a matter of fact, if you'll turn there for just a moment, I want you to look with me at the very last line of chapter 12 and then the opening verses of chapter 13 because he makes a stunning statement and the statement is this, a life without love is a wasted life. It doesn't matter how many books you write, it doesn't matter how many sermons you preach, it doesn't matter how many mathematical formulas you solve. A life without love is a wasted life. So he says in the end of chapter 12, and I, I show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and know all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. But do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor. And if I surrender my body to be burned. But do not have love. I prove, it proves me nothing. Notice the repetition of that thought. But do not have love. I can speak the most spectacular and magnificent truths in a small group setting. But if I'm a cantankerous person, it doesn't mean anything. I, I can state things in the most eloquent and exquisite of ways. But if I harbor ill will and resentment in my mind toward another person, it doesn't mean anything. You would think God's so impressed by the eloquent way that this person has stated this truth or that truth, sung this song or that song, prayed this prayer. And God says it doesn't mean anything because they are not allowing the transforming power of the gospel which exemplifies the love of God to change them. And the way that they look at people and treat people and behave toward people. He goes on and he shows us that this godlike love is demonstrated in the way we treat others, how we treat one another in verses four through seven. Because these qualities are just are just ethereal comments unless they're forged in the fire of relationship. That's how God sanctifies us, primarily through relationships. And God wants us to be the kind of people that are characterized by love because that's the way that he is characterized. In fact, one of his great attributes, it's not, it's not all that he is, it's not his only attribute, but all of us know God is love. And so, God-like love is demonstrated 
in this way through relationships, the way we treat others. Notice with me in verse 4, he says there are two positive expressions of love. Two positive expressions of love. Love is patient and kind. Now they've got an aroma about them, don't they? Love is patient and kind. Both of these two qualities also exemplify the fruit of the Spirit, interestingly enough. They demonstrate that a person is filled with the Spirit of God. All of us who are saved are indwelt by the Spirit of God, but not all of us are filled with the Spirit of God. And not all of us have the fruit of the Spirit of God being manifested through our lives to the same degree. But when, the, when we are filled with the Spirit of God and the fruit of the Spirit of God is being manifest in and through our lives, two qualities that are exemplified are patience and kindness. See, the, the Corinthians, you know this book very well, they were a spiritually gifted people with a lot of theological insight, but they weren't very mature people. So you can be spiritually knowledgeable and you can be spiritually gifted and be quite immature. And so maturity is exemplified in part through patience and kindness. And then he follows that up with a list about what love does not do. And the words are kind of sleazy. There is, there's an odor about them, a stench. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. That is, it's not rude, but polite and considerate. Love does not seek its own. You don't have it saying, I want it my way, when I want it, and how I want it. Love doesn't seek its own. Love is not easily provoked. It's not easily angered. It's got a, a tremendous amount of self-control. And love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It's forgiving. It's not continually bringing up the past mistakes of others. All of us have people in our lives that have genuinely hurt us and wronged us. And working through that love does not take into account a wrong suffered takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of spirit-inspired work in our lives. And you can, you can tell that it's a slow work because when you see that person or persons, that event or circumstance comes to mind very quickly. Praise God he's not like that toward us, is he? Praise God when he sees me fall on my knees and I begin to, to pray. He doesn't begin to draw up all of those situations and circumstances from the previous week and look at me through the eyes of those circumstances and situations where I've failed him. But that's the way we are toward others, aren't we? we when we see them, we see them like this. 
But it happens slowly, the Spirit's work as he forges in us, as we pray for that person and we, we, seek, to, we seek to love that person. Little by little, it, it takes a little bit of time. And, and over time as we pray and we, we think, uh, things begin to change. And, and then before we know it, over time, when we see that person, that circumstance, that situation, that, that word of, of um, harshness, that, that act of betrayal, it's not right there any longer. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And then he says that love rejoices, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Then he's got four verbs, and all of the verbs have as their object all things. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let us sink in. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Toward the end, he says, Love never fails. What a beautiful demonstration of who God is. See, before we make this too much about ourselves, those, those descriptions and qualities, we need to realize that they are descriptive of God. That's who God is. And God wants us to be like him. So that's why there needs to be a little bit of work that has to take place in us. And, and some of us, like me, there's quite a bit of work that needs to take place. And so to do that, he's got to forge us in a fiery furnace of relationships and so he wrote to the church at Corinth not because they weren't spiritually gifted not because they weren't spiritually knowledgeable he wrote to them because they needed to to demonstrate the beautiful magnificent love of God one to another and what motivates us and pushes us forward is a reminder that God loves us in fact this is the way that that John Stott put it. Moved by the perfection of his holy love, God in Christ substituted himself for sinners. Moved by the perfection of his holy love, God in Christ substituted himself for sinners. That is the heart of the cross. So we find it difficult to love certain people. We just do. So what moves us and compels us and drives us to love them? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when he looked at us, he saw us for who we truly are. Sinners that deserved eternal damnation. But in love he predestined us to adoption. And the means by which he brought us to himself was the cross of his beloved son. He on that cross, punished Christ in our place. He bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. How can we not love those whom God has put us in relationship with? How can we not love those who have wronged us and betrayed us when he has loved us so passionately and so unreservedly? 
How can we excuse looking by people when God didn't look by us? So we say, God, this is, this is a horrible thought I've got in my mind because when I see them, I see them like this. And it's more about me than them at this point. Help me see them the way you see them and help me to see them the way you see me. It may not take a, may take five months, may take five years, but as you pray, as you choose, the Spirit of God does a beautiful, beautiful work. In the upper room, John chapter 13 through 17. John is the gospel that doesn't describe the, the partaking of the, of the Lord's Supper. In fact, if we didn't have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we wouldn't even know anything about the Lord's Supper from the gospels. But with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we only know just very little about what Jesus said in the upper room. But in John's gospel, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17... He's right on the precipice of going to, of going to Gethsemane, being arrested and crucified. And, and, and what punctuates those chapters? Love one another. Love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Abide in me and I in you. And you will demonstrate Love one for another. It's, it's phenomenal. That as they're sitting around that table, all of them will abandon him. One of them will betray him. One of them will desert him. And his, all of them will desert him, but one will deny him. One will betray him. One will deny him. All of them will abandon him. And he says, love one another. Love one another just as I have loved you. And in fact, the Father loves you as much as he loves me. Unbelievable that in that situation and circumstance and setting, he could make a statement like that. So this morning, as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we're saying is, Father, this reminds me of how much you love me because this reminds me of Christ's death. And Christ's death inspires me to love others with the same love with which you love me. It may be that as you're here today, you're a visitor with us and you're kind of wondering, Pastor, what's the, what's the policy, what's the practice of the church for visitors? If, if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ and you're visiting with us today and maybe you're visiting a family or a friend and you're actively involved in an evangelical church, maybe you've recently moved to Louisville and you're, you, you are looking for a an evangelical church, and you're walking with the, with the Lord, we would encourage you to, to celebrate with us uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you're not walking with Jesus, whether you're a member of a church, this church or another church, I'd encourage you not to, not to take it. It might be that you think, man, oh man, Pastor, what we just said, I don't think I love people like Jesus loves people. Well, none of us do. The Lord's Supper is not for perfect people. The Lord's Supper is for redeemed people who are, seeking to, who are seeking to walk in the way of truth. 
And maybe there's just somebody in your mind that you know you're embittered toward. Well, then just confess it to the Lord as sin and, and, and enjoy the benefits of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer and then the deacons are going to come forward and we'll distribute. Our chairman of the deacons, Garrett Wall, is going to assist me this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that the cross of Christ crops up in the most unlikely of circumstances and situations. And whenever it does, it's a reminder to us, your people, how much you love us and how much we're to love others. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, let us cherish and relish the love that you have for us and help us to be infused with that knowledge driving us and in helping us to love others. In Jesus' name, amen.